listeners, it's October 1st, Friday, October 1st, 2021. This date, for those of you who are interested in sports, particularly in boxing, marks the 46th anniversary of what was probably the most brutal heavyweight title fight in the history of the sport. We don't normally cover sports on this show, but we thought we'd do it today. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. The Thriller in Manila was the name that the late, great Muhammad Ali gave to his third fight with his rival, Smokin' Joe Frazier. Now, a little backstory on this. Ali, in my opinion, is probably the greatest heavyweight that ever lived, and I can go on about that at length and explain why I say that and back it up with facts and explain and justify it. But for the sake of our discussion today, just accept what I say. Uh, it'll make it a lot easier to follow the backstory. Ali left the game when he hadn't quite yet peaked. He was just beginning to peak when he was stripped of his title for his refusing, refusal to accept induction into the U.S. Armed Forces in the Vietnam era. Strangely enough, Ali had been listed by the Louisville, Kentucky Draft Board as unfit mentally for the draft. They said his IQ wasn't high enough, he wasn't intelligent enough, because they wanted to have him out there and make money. The minute he joined the Nation of Islam, he became politically persona non grata, and they thought they would remove him and get him into the army. He would rather sacrifice his career, sacrifice his profession and his ability to make money, rather than violate his religious beliefs. You have to respect that. Not many other people would do it. People will quickly now cite Colin Kaepernick as latching on to the Black Lives Matter movement, taking a knee, but there's a very, very big difference between Muhammad Ali and Colin Kaepernick. Muhammad Ali was sincere in his beliefs. Colin Kaepernick is a fraud. Colin Kaepernick did not take that stance at the height of his professional career. Kaepernick only decided to take that stance as a way of intimidating the white owners and discourage them or disincentivize them from cutting him when he was going to be cut because his skills were waning and he was no longer the formidable pro quarterback that he once was. So that's a completely different kettle of fish. I have no respect for Colin Kaepernick. But Ali was stripped. Now, in the absence of him uh, being in the fight game, many different municipalities or states recognized different people uh, as the champion. There was an elimination tournament held, and the winner of that elimination tournament for the vacant title was Jimmy Ellis, a man who also knew Ali in Louisville. They had been teammates in the Golden Gloves together. Now, Frazier was recognized as the legitimate champion in several other states. Let me continue. Yancey Durham, who was Frazier's manager at the time, uh, urged Frazier not to compete in the tournament and to simply fight the winner of the tournament. Ultimately, they did in February of 1970. Joe Frazier knocked out Jimmy Ellis. It was a fifth-round TKO because he couldn't answer the bell after being floored in the previous round. And he became the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. 
Later that year, Ali was able to get his boxing license back. He won a unanimous decision in the Supreme Court. He was able to fight Jerry Quarry in Georgia, where he got a license. Very little in the way of preparation or training. He won in three rounds. In December of the same year, he fought the Argentine bull, Oscar Bonavina, the man who floored Joe Frazier twice and almost defeated him. And he knocked out Bonavina in a less than spectacular, but nonetheless bruising, 15-round non-title fight in the garden. Madison Square Garden, that is. Now, I personally feel that Ali should have had more tune-up fights. I think he took Frazier too lightly. He let his ego get the better of him. He should have trained a little more. He took a brutal body beating in that fight against Bonavina. That was, I think, on December 15th. And he signed to fight Frazier on March the 8th. That's very little time to recover. And uh, probably only a little over two months' time to train. Not simply enough. I believe, even though Ali had slowed down marginally uh, compared to what he was before. I think had he trained and fought Frazier later in the year, he wins the fight. Because it was a pretty close fight as it was. But he wins the fight. And I think he wins the fight without taking the damage that he sustained in that fight, the first fight. The Super Fight won, March 8th, 1971 in Madison Square Garden. He was winning the opening rounds, and then Frazier started to get to him. I don't know if it was so much because Frazier was getting to him or Ali no longer had the wind to fight at that pace because he'd been off so many years. Uh, Clearly, if he was in better shape, he would have fared better. He would have taken less punishment. And fighters age quickly and their skills diminish both physically and mentally as they take more and more punishment. So the more he could have forestalled... um, in in incurring that punishment. Uh, He probably would have left the ring in better shape and maybe left sooner. Regardless, he lost that fight, was knocked down famously in the 15th round by Frazier's left hook, which everyone acknowledges is probably the best left hook in the history of the division, maybe the best left hook in boxing. Frazier then goes on to lose his title to George Foreman, the two, Ali and Frazier, meet again in January of 74 in a non-title match in the Garden. Ali wins a one-sided 12-round unanimous decision. Foreman, meanwhile, is destroying everyone in the heavyweight division, including Ken Norton, who gave Ali a hard time. Destroyed him in two rounds. Blew him out. In October of 74, Ali ultimately meets George Foreman in Kinshasa's eye year. It was supposed to be in September, but Foreman suffered a cut over his eye in training. So they delayed it by 30 days. In the fight that became to be known as the Rumble in the Jungle, Ali, using his famous rope-a-dope technique, allowed George Foreman to essentially wear himself out while hitting him with sharp punches and knocked him out for the eight count in the eighth round to become the first and only man to regain the heavyweight championship of the world after having lost it. Now Ali goes on a sort of a fight of the month club to make some cash with marginal contenders, but you're required to defend against the number one contender once a year. Foreman goes on to have some 
problems of his own and then ultimately leaves the game before coming back many, many years later. So there's no rematch between Ali and Foreman. But Frazier is the number one contender. But by this time in his career, after his two very, very difficult fights with Ali, I mean, Frazier won the first fight, but at great physical cost, and his pummeling at the hands of George Foreman, uh, Frazier's on the downside and really hasn't looked like the old Joe Frazier since he fought Ali. With the exception of those two Ali fights, he looked like nothing. So it wasn't as if Ali felt that Frazier was a big threat at this point. And then also you have to remember that Ali uh, was obligated to defend against the number one contender, and it was one more big payday for Joe Frazier. Uh, Ali really didn't have the animosity against Frazier that Frazier had against him. Everything Ali did was to try and uh, build the gate and the fight in terms of those criticisms that he used to make of, of Frazier, but uh, he didn't really have any animosity towards him. Frazier, on the other hand, did not like it at all. So one of the things I look at before a fight to gauge how well conditioned the fighters are is weights. Now, the thrill in Manila went on to be one of the greatest fights in heavyweight history, probably the most brutal. And it was extremely close with the uh, battle raging back and forth. And I do not think that it would have been as close had Ali taken the fight more seriously. Yes, he never uh, took Frazier lightly, but I guess he really thought that Frazier was shot. He didn't train as well. Now, how do we know this? Well, as fighters get older their optimal weight changes. As a fighter gets older, he carries a little more weight. The year before, though, just one year before, 1974, actually 11 months before, Ali had weighed in at about 217 to fight George Foreman, and he looked really good. This time, when he fought Frazier, he weighed in at something on the order of 222 pounds over his 220 maximum that he did. That tells me that he didn't train down as much as he should have. Now, perhaps he felt because of the heat and humidity, he might lose a certain amount of weight. That was a little heavy. Now, Frazier, by the same token, also weighed in heavier. He weighed about 213, 214. In his prime, Frazier weighed about 204, and Ali weighed about 215. So they both were about 10 pounds over their prime weight. Ali thought he could get Frazier out pretty early. Through the first four rounds, Ali was in control. In the fifth and sixth round, Frazier started coming on. In fact, he hurt Frazier late in the first round and tried to take him out but couldn't finish him. Frazier started coming on, and in the same character of their previous meetings, he owned the middle rounds. And he began doing serious damage on on Ali even hitting him very hard with his right hand, where Frazier was not known to have a lot of power. And uh, that was due to the great work of his trainer, Eddie Futch, who had taken over Frazier's training after the death of Yank Durham, Yancey Durham, his first trainer. So the fight was in the trenches. Now, there's a lot of folklore that's been developed over this fight, and I wanted to take this opportunity on the anniversary to clear it up. Rumors that Ali was going to quit at the end of the 14th round. Oh, that's not true. It is true that Ali did feel like quitting at some point. But that was after, I think, the ninth or tenth round where Ali threw up his hands. He says, I'm not going back out there. This guy's crazy. The conditions 
uh, in the Philippines uh, for that fight uh, would lead one to make that statement. You'd almost have to be crazy to want to fight. It was indoors, no air conditioning. The temperature was over 100 inside, about 120 in the ring under the lights. And the humidity was close to 100%. So there was no way to cool off through evaporation. It was just brutal. The gloves also at that time were not like the boxing gloves of today, which are essentially closed-cell foam that can't absorb water. They were all matte and roving sort of cloth, and they got soaked with the humidity and the sweat, and they began compressing, not having their loft, and they became much heavier. So they were 8-ounce gloves, they were waterlogged and soaked, and they didn't have much cushion, and it was really became a brutal battle of attrition. But the reality is that Ali did come out after the ninth and 10th round and continued to fight. They fought essentially on near even terms in the 11th and the 12th with Ali getting a little better of it. But the 13th was a big round for Ali. In fact, Boxing Illustrated and Ring Magazine, I think both voted it round of the year. Ali rallied, hit Frazier with a, a right that knocked his mouthpiece out some 30 rows back. Um, he hit Frazier pretty hard. He won that round big. Round 14 was a continuation. At this time, what nobody really knew was that Frazier had been blind in one eye since the Olympics, and his eyes were rapidly closing from all the punches that Ali had hit. Ali, for his part, uh, had to fight off a lot of pain because Frazier hit him with so many body shots around the hips that his hips were locking up and he had hematomas and he couldn't move around. And his legs were a big part of his defense, but he sort of pushed himself by sheer force of will through that and managed to punch. And in the 14th round, he had Frazier almost within a punch or two going down, not because Ali had a lot of power left, but because Frazier could no longer see what was coming. And Frazier didn't have much power left. Now, if you listen to Joe Frazier's son in some interviews, he said that he was telling um, the corner, trying to get message to the corner, don't stop the fight, Eddie. Talking about Eddie Futch, because he supposedly was sitting underneath Ali's corner and made the statement that Ali was not going to come out. And if only uh, they hadn't stopped the fight... Ali would have quit, and then Joe would have been champion again. Uh, I disagree with that. We don't have audio of that, but we do have visual. And as I said, I think they're mixing a little folklore here. Ali did make the statement that he didn't want to go back out, but that was earlier in the fight, and he did go back out. And you can't tell me that after pummeling his opponent in the previous two rounds, round 13 and 14, that he's not going out for the 15th round and that Angelo Dundee is going to let him quit on his stool because all he had to do was basically just stand up for the um, last round and the fight was going to be his because at the end of the 14th, um, at the end of the 13th round, uh, most of the press had the fight scored 8-4-1. If you want to say it was 8-5, he was behind. There was also no way that Frazier was going to be able to knock Ali out in the 15th round because he had nothing left, and neither did Ali. But he had the advantage because Frazier couldn't see what was coming. If you look at the fight films, if you look at the films of Ali in the corner, you see nothing in the way he is sitting in that corner. You see nothing 
in the way that Angelo Dundee is working on him and Drew Brudini Brown is working on and holding his waistband out so he could breathe that gives you any indication they had that he had any uh, idea of doing anything else other than coming out for the 15th and final round. So I want to put that rumor to rest once and for all. Futch made the humane decision to call the fight because he realized in his own judgment that there was no way that Frazier was going to win that decision. He was too far behind and that there was no way he could win by knockout because he didn't have anything left. So all there was was the potential for real serious injury or possibly fatal injury. So he stopped the fight. And he was voted manager of the year for that reason from Ring Magazine. So any of this rumor that you hear about Ali quitting is completely taken out of context. He did make that statement, but he made it earlier in the fight, came out for those rounds regardless, and there was no indication in the fight films that shows in any way, any evidence you can point to, that Ali had any other intention other than to come out for the 15th round. But it remains... The greatest heavyweight fight, I think, in the history of the heavyweight division, greatest heavyweight title fight, clearly the most brutal, and I think it ruined both men, and that they should have simply retired after that and not gone on to fight again. They were never the same. In fact, Ali um, made the statement that we went to Manila as champions and we came back as old men. Nobody really knew what they went through until years later. There were many specials done in that fight, but there was a great, excellent HBO documentary which really explored um, the damage that each fighter took and where they really tried to address this uh, rumor that Ali was going to quit. Uh, and I think it was taken out of context, so I wanted to clarify that. What I wanted to talk about today was something I had made reference to a few shows prior. I told you that there is a a war going on, a cultural war. The white male is being phased out of our public image in our culture. Every commercial you see today features almost exclusively an interracial couple or it features a same-sex couple. The white male, if he's featured at all, seldom gets a speaking part. And when he's in the commercial, he's usually folding clothes and acting in some subservient role. Now, there's clearly a message here. Now, I don't know the exact percentages. I mentioned them in a previous uh, podcast. But there's no question if you watch TV, you've seen this yourself. So my question becomes, why is this being done? People who sponsor shows are doing so to gain advertising time to promote their products. Now, when you promote a product, you try and fashion advertising campaigns or commercials that target the market segment you're going after. So my question becomes, if the great preponderance of these TV commercials feature interracial couples, same-sex couples, mixed heritage children, one is given to assume, therefore, that this must be the market segment. Now, for a market segment to be viable, it has to be sufficiently large to justify your uh, marketing to them. Now, for certain high-end products, that's not necessarily true because you don't move a large volume. But this is every commercial we're talking about. So we're talking about 
products that people sell in great quantity and therefore requires a large number of people. So I thought it might be uh, informative to look at some marriage figures uh, to see what the story is. Uh, Are there that many interracial couples? Is that what's really going on here? So it was very, very interesting to me. And I found up out some, um, some very, very, very interesting figures. Now, this is from the Census Bureau. And this is as of 2010, because all of the data from the 2020 census has not yet been correlated. Uh, in this country, in this country, we have a total of 60,384,000 married couples. Of these, what is interesting to note, 50 million of those 60 million, 50 million, 50 million 410,000 involve a white husband with a white wife. That's the greater majority. Now, another 4 million involve a black husband with a black wife. So we have same race couples. Now we're up to 54 million of the 60,384,000 that are same race couples. Now, Another 2,855,000, almost 3 million, are an Asian husband and an Asian wife. So that puts us at 57 million. The point is, there's a very small percentage of married couples in this country that are represented in those commercials. This mixed ethnicity couple is a figment of people's imagination. It's a figment of people who are trying to manipulate the population uh, cultural ethos to convince everyone that this is what a typical American couple looks like. It is not. For whatever reason, and I'm not passing judgment on it, but for whatever reason, the majority of people in this country marry within their race and ethnicity. So I don't understand what the benefit is if it's not social engineering. I don't understand what the benefit is to these companies to try and sell their products by way of appealing to people that really don't exist in any sufficient quantity. These interracial couples and mixed racial children. This is not the vast majority of the United States and it doesn't matter white, black, or anything. It's not a a prejudice against any particular race because apparently even black Americans prefer to marry within their race. Out of the the black husband and the black wife, I told you, titles totals 4 million. Black husbands with a white wife, only 390,000. Black husbands with an Asian wife, only 39,000. Black husband with an other wife, 66,000. Not many. You just don't have many. So the question becomes, what is driving this? What is driving this if it's not social engineering? And 
There's some other things which are pretty interesting uh, regarding these things. The divorce rate among these interracial couples is much higher. Now, for whatever reason uh, that exists, it does exist. So they're pushing something which, one, doesn't exist, and the divorce rate uh, would indicate that even when it does exist, it's more predisposed to ending in an unhappy conclusion than, um, than not. So I just wanted to address this as a follow-up to the show we did a few weeks ago, that we're being manipulated deliberately. There is no logical basis in terms of a financial incentive for people to do this. And this is the tra- uh, tragedy of woke culture. This woke culture is, is completely out of control. It's completely out of control. And other people are remarking on this. There are, for several years, talk, there was an article I read here in uh, Countercurrents, The War Against Whites in Advertising. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable. There's a quote here. The mass marketing of interracial relationships, particularly white women with black men, has become so ubiquitous and so militant, even the least observant members of our culture have begun to notice. Walking through a mall recently, I noticed three large marketing images of couples in three different stores. Two of the three were interracial couples, depicting a white woman and a black man. The third couple was white. Perhaps what struck me as most peculiar was the fact that the city where I was shopping Whites make up about 97% of the population. Blacks are less than 2%. The same thing that I had just said. And I I find it interesting that of all the interracial makeups, they're trying to go with the the white woman and the black man because the divorce rate I mentioned to you, of all the combinations that exist, that combination is the one that's most likely to end in divorce. Interracial couples where the husband is white and the wife is black seem to be far more stable from a relationship standpoint and do not end in divorce as frequently. In fact, the divorce rate is only marginally higher than the divorce rate would be for uh, a couple where both the husband and the wife were white. So there's something to this, and the statistics cannot be denied. They're being suppressed, but they cannot be denied, and this all flies in the face of logic. So if you think we're not living in a woke culture, if you think we're not being played as fools, the same thing is going on with COVID, depicting it as being more deadly than it is, wanting us all to live our lives as if we're going to live in fear, no end in sight, vaccinations being foisted upon us, despite new evidence coming out every day indicating that which they are telling us is completely false. There is a study. Rand Paul just took one of the uh, officials in the Biden uh, administration to task over this. There was a study out of Israel. And people say, well, it's only one study. Yes, it's one study. Uh, There's also one like it from Emory University here. But this one study in Israel isn't a study with 5,000 participants or 50,000 participants or even 100,000 participants. This study undertaken by the Israelis had two and a half million participants. And they prove without a shadow of a doubt that people who have had have had COVID and survived it, have an antibody level and an immunity on orders of magnitude multiple times greater than anything anyone can get from a vaccine. So my question is, I can see 
why uh, people may want people who have not had COVID and don't have COVID antibodies to be vaccine, but why the push to threaten public servants, teachers, hospital workers with firing and termination and unpaid leave if they refuse to get vaccinated, if these people can also demonstrate that they, in fact, have had COVID, have survived it, and have an antibody level superior to anything they can get from a vaccine. Don't you think they have an argument there? I think so. And I'm sure you're thinking it too. And that's one of the reasons I do this podcast. Not only to provide information, but to provide validation of what you're already thinking yourself. You're not crazy. The world is upside down. This woke culture is out of control. And it's leading us all on the road to ruin. And if it's not stopped somehow and stopped soon, there's going to be no United States left as we know it. I'm Jamie Dury. I'll see you all next week.